we do have a long way to go to get all those people registered of voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Election Verification Network. The nonpartisan EVN is made up of election officials, researchers, and advocates committed to accurate, accessible, transparent, reliable, and verifiable elections. Learn more or get advice from experts at electionverification.org. Welcome, welcome everyone to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we've spent over 15 years talking with and learning from election administration and government officials about how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent way. On Dead Men Don't Vote, we share what we've learned provide insights from the world-class team we've built, interview leading election experts and thought leaders passionate about our democracy, and explore election issues and controversies. We want to rise above the partisanship and muddied waters to answer all your questions about elections in a way that's pro-democracy and inspires trust in our election processes. I'm Gregory Miller, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and tireless advocate for verifiable elections. I'm your host for a special two-part conversation series about the important topic of securifying digital remote voting, and whether you truly can or not. They'll consider what is that challenge and why that needs to be clearly understood, where we anticipate considerable energy around this type of voting ahead of 2024. Today, over 30 states require their local election officials, or LEOs, to provide an electronic ballot return, or EBR, method to absentee voters who reside outside of the U.S., to military voters, and in 13 states in 2022 that included voters with disabilities. While electronic ballot return may be limited to specific voters, the security of these votes matters for both the individual and for the trustworthiness of the entire election. Unfortunately, LEOs don't have a lot of guidance on how to perform EBR with cybersecurity and other safeguards on ballot integrity and ballot secrecy. When using EBR, voters have to give up both integrity and security, and they always must put themselves at greater risk than that faced by paper absentee ballot voters. That's unfortunate for overseas voters, especially for those with other options. But for voters with disabilities, it is unacceptable. It is unacceptable to require voters with disabilities or other disadvantages that make it difficult or impossible to get to a voting place to forgo or put at risk ballot integrity and ballot secrecy despite federal legal protections that require election officials to provide these voters with the means to vote independently and privately with the same protections as other in-person voters or absentee voters. There has been some policy guidance for elections officials, including analysis by the OSID Institute on absentee voting for voters with disabilities. But there hasn't been a lot of practical guidance for LEOs who are evaluating multiple options for how to use technology for EBR, which includes navigating the buzzword soup that also includes digital remote voting or mobile voting to refer to technology that might be EBR or might be combined with other services, 
Now, recently, an organization called the Global Blockchain Alliance, or GBA, issued a report for the benefit of policymakers that compares various digital return methods based on usability and security, but also is intended as input to LEOs making decisions about electronic ballot return, or EBR. It's a worthy effort, but the report is dense, especially the part about security. This topic deserves better for all audiences. So this is the first of a two-part extended conversation between the OSET Institute's CTO, John Sevis, and election technology and security expert, Dr. Audrey Maligan, professor of mathematics at Virginia Wesleyan University and former mathematical advisor at the Verified Voting Foundation. Together, they'll untangle the security issues in the GBA report because they share a concern about that report. For anyone who invests hours to read it, cover to cover, and delve into the nuances, it's helpful. For the larger audience curious about the issues of iVoting and who will only be able to skim this report, the takeaway will be somewhat like, fancy, complex, blockchain-ish digital absentee voting has better usability than standard paper absentee voting, but has a different mix of security issues, end quote. But that's not a sensible takeaway, at least according to the majority viewpoint of election technology integrity and cybersecurity professionals. In fact, that summary takeaway could be just enough to derail well-intentioned policymakers and election official decision-makers. Audrey's and John's objective, backed by their decades of professional technical experience, is to talk through the basic issues, explain each in simple terms for a general audience, and particularly for election professionals and policymakers who don't have the time or technical expertise to sift through the security issues on their own. And these subject matter experts hope to make the conversation at least a little fun and engaging as a complement to the somewhat dry and very detailed report. In our first segment, John and Audrey sort the buzzword space, define the various forms of physical and digital absentee ballot return that the report compares. And then in the second segment, they'll start the explanation of seven points of comparison that the report uses to compare the various forms of ballot return. And then they will finish with one of their major conclusions that all of these points of comparison, some digital return methods, notably email, the most widely used, completely fail on security. They are far worse than physical ballot return methods and lack protections that are feasible in other methods. In the third segment of our next episode, Dr. Malagan and Mr. Sevis will untangle some of the nuances of the comparison points and then present their interpretation of how to use the report's concepts to compare and contrast physical ballot return methods with digital methods. And they'll roll all of that up in their final segment with, if not the bottom line, at least the Audrey John version. You know our esteemed CTO, John Sevis, with his professional, non-professional ability to make even the most complicated subjects simple and engaging. However, I'm stoked to introduce you to the very smart, witty, and fun Dr. Audrey Malagon, professor of mathematics at Virginia Wesleyan University in Virginia Beach, who has also served as mathematical advisor and is now on the board of advisors to the Verified Voting Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on the intersection of elections and technology. And with that, part one, the tangled web of iVoting. Hello, Dr. Audrey Malagon. Hi, John. Election officials have faced so many challenges in the past few years just ensuring that Americans can exercise their right to vote. I'm really happy that we can help them sort through some of the technical nuances involved in ballot return methods today. And thanks for joining me in the quest to untangle some of those uh, key security issues in the Government Blockchain Association's Remote Election Technology Report. 
Now, let me say first, as from my viewpoint, the report is a solid piece of work. And uh, careful readers will be rewarded with excellent and detailed descriptions of all sorts of interesting stuff. Absentee voting processes, different methods of returning absentee ballots, some ways to compare those methods. However... Yeah, like you said, that report covers a lot. And so if you're an election official with a lot on your plate, trying to just glean a really high level takeaway, some of the charts in that report can make it really look like electronic return methods improve usability and are just somewhat comparable on security. But that's really not the case. And we'll get into that in this podcast. So when you're using an electronic return method, you're really confronted with different and in some cases really serious concerns for the privacy and the security of the ballot. And voters and election officials deserve to be well informed about those differences in return methods. Yeah, well stated. And I do pass on the usability part of the report since security is my not so much usability. Yeah, and a lot of my work in the election security space has focused on being able to reliably audit elections. And so as the method of ballot return impacts the trustworthiness of the ballots we're auditing. Indeed. And I'll just say, as a security geek, I think it's a bad idea to make a big sacrifice in security for the sake of some gains in usability, especially ones that might not be a big deal to a whole lot of voters. Yeah, I agree. There may be some situations where a voter has to give up some security in order to cast their ballot privately and independently, but they deserve to have all the information about the method they're using. So by focusing really on security here, I think, John, we can help election officials make informed decisions about the return methods and hopefully avoid choices that introduce really serious security concerns with, like you said, very little improvement in usability. And that's why I think we have a good goal here for part one, to set the stage by simply describing the various methods of absentee ballot return that the report compares. And we'll get into the comparisons later. But before we even do that, there is a buzzword space that we need to clear out a bit. Yes, definitely. Okay, election officials refer to ballots that come to their office through either email, apps, web portal, or fax, collectively as electronically returned ballots. So we'll use that term here today. Now, these electronically returned ballots differ from other methods of return, like a drop box or a mailed ballot, because the election officials are not receiving the same piece of paper that the voter marked. And that's really the key difference here. The election official is getting something that started out as an electronic copy of a paper ballot and then got sent over the Internet. Key distinction. And another part of the buzzword space includes these things. Digital absentee voting, mobile voting, digital ballot return. Now, these are more encompassing terms. Some approaches to electronic ballot return, like email, are limited to a digital or electronic method of returning a ballot, but it's separate from the method of marking it. Then other kinds of digital absentee voting, they combine into one, the delivery of the ballot, marking it and returning it. Exactly. But regardless of the term used, we're going to really focus on the ballot return process. So the process of getting the voters' choices to the election official whether that happens as part of another physical or digital process or alone. We're going to focus on that return part. 
Exactly. To start the rundown of return methods, let's begin with the one that's the most familiar to absentee voters, a paper ballot and a voter statement or affidavit. These two documents mailed out to a voter who marks the ballot, signs the affidavit, and mails it all back to the elections office. Or some variation where the voter might receive the ballot in the mail, but return the ballot directly to the election official at the election office or a polling place, or might put it in an official drop box. Right. A lot of variations there, but they're all, I think, pretty familiar. There's another variation, maybe less familiar, where a voter downloads the blank ballot and affidavit over the internet or receives it by email. And what they end up with is a home printed ballot and affidavit, which they mail back or they drop off the same as the pre-printed absentee ballot. Right. And the GBA report treats home print as a separate method because of differences in usability. But for our discussion, we can just talk about physical return of ballots without really worrying about whether those were pre-printed and marked at home or home printed. Right. Because when we focus on the security of the physical ballot return process, there's really no difference how that physical ballot was printed. Exactly. But there could be some differences seen in how the physical ballot is returned. Does it go directly into a secure Dropbox? Is it handled by the postal services first? Yeah. And it's also worth noting that not every voter has the ability to get to a Dropbox. So for security comparison purposes, we'll go with the postal return method, the least common denominator. Audrey, what's next? The next most common is probably email return. So here the marked ballot and the signed affidavit are digital files that the voter attaches to an email message, and they send that email to their local election official, and these files travel over the internet. Eventually they land on a mail server for what we really hope is actually the elections office. And at that point, a person, again, we hope, an election official, or even a pair of them working in tandem, they use a workstation to get that email, to print the attachments, and to link the ballot attachment with the affidavit attachment, probably by printing them and putting them in an envelope with a privacy sleeve, all the while taking care to not look at the voter's ballot. We're also hoping that when they open these attachments that they are just ballot files without any viruses. So from there... The printed ballot and the affidavit files are stored and treated just like absentee ballots returned physically, even though, and this is that key distinction, the voter has actually never seen or interacted with these emailed, then printed ballots. What the election official has is a piece of paper that has never been in the voter's possession. Exactly. With that email ballot return as a baseline, I can do the next two pretty quickly. Ballots can be returned via a file upload that, like email, The ballot and the affidavit are just files on the voter's computer, or they get turned into files on the voter's computer. And then they get sent over the internet. Again, just files going over the internet. Now, in this case, instead of telling an email server to deliver it to an email address that we hope is an election official, instead, the voter goes to a website and uploads the files. Next, fax return, pretty much the same as email, where the ballot and affidavit are turned into data that's transmitted over the internet to an elections office, yes, over the internet. It may not be obvious to some, but faxes go over the internet just as phone calls do. And further, faxes are often delivered by email or via a website. So all three of these things, email, fax, web upload, are very similar in in principle. I definitely have the distinction that Audrey just... And just like with email ballot return, the files arrive on some computer and they require a person to actually print them 
put them together, not peak, and store them for later processing. But it's important to note that even though a ballot is printed, technically creating what some might call a paper ballot, this voter has never seen or interacted with that piece of paper. And I'll take the uh, second to last method, which is part of a digital absentee ballot system where the voter uses some software on their own computer or mobile device to get their digital ballot and affidavit to mark their ballot and to complete the affidavit on that device and then to send that marked ballot data and completed affidavit data to send them over the internet to a server that stores them for later processing. And the key point I want to make here compared to email, for example, is that this is an integrated system. The client software and the back-end system can cooperate to use standard cryptography and data security to protect these two digital documents, not just in transit, but also at rest. And that most notably does not happen with email, fax, or upload. That's right. There's a lot of buzz around blockchain for ballots, too. So I want to take a minute to explain what introducing blockchain into the equation does and does not do. The first part is really similar to what you just explained, John, that the user is going to create a digital ballot that's sent over the internet for storage and processing. What a blockchain introduces is a digital ledger. So this is designed to be tamper-proof, a really tamper-proof record. And in the most basic sense, What happens with the digital ledger is that many copies of the ballot are created digitally, encrypted in a way that makes tampering really apparent. It's pretty obvious if just a few copies of this ballot are off, and so we can reject those. But an important point here is that the blockchain can only securely store what it receives. So even if there's security on the receiving end through the blockchain and the digital ledger, adding that digital ledger doesn't protect against malware on the voter's device or any other potential threats to the ballot before it's actually received and added to the ledger. Right. And that includes, by the way, the server that's running the ledger software. That is clearly the most complicated method. So thank you, Audrey, for running us through that. So sending a ballot in an affidavit over the internet to some server that puts it on a digital ledger, that all by itself, that's just a, a mouthful. But I want to add one footnote here. The GBA report defines the second to last method as using a browser. That's the ledgerless method, using a browser. And then that final method, Audrey, that used recapped, the GBA report the, says that the ledger version uses a mobile app. And there I am going to do it. In both cases, it's software on a voter's computer talking to software on a server operated, we hope, by an elections office. In a non-ledger-based system, the voter software could be a browser, could be a mobile app, could even be a PC-based fat client. And the same is true for ledger-based systems. Some are app-based and some are not. So I think for purposes of our comparison here, we're just going to treat these last two as sort of crypto-based methods of return, one with a ledger, one without, and just leave the distinction there. Yeah, because the key distinction really is about how those ballots are digitally stored. Whether there is a ledger to act as a ballot lockbox with crypto protections versus a server where encrypted ballot files are just stored as is. And believe it or not, I think that wraps it up for all the various ways that election officials can choose to meet a state requirement for electronic ballot return by adopting one of these methods. And there's plenty more to say about how to compare these methods as we continue to examine the ways in which digital ballot return presents new and less understood risks to voters after a short break. 
This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Verified Voting Foundation. The foundation strengthens democracy for all voters by promoting responsible use of technology in elections. Verified Voting works with election officials, policymakers, and democracy defenders across party lines to support public confidence in elections. Learn more at www.verifiedvoting.org. Welcome back to the Tangled Web of iVoting, a conversation between Dr. Audrey Melligan, Professor of Mathematics at VWU, and John Sevis, the CTO at the OSET Institute. Let's listen in. For this segment of our conversation, Audrey, let's briefly recap the various methods of digital ballot return and then start explaining the different ways they can be compared, particularly compared in terms of security. So how about you start? First, before we even get to digital ballot return, we do have paper ballots and a voter statement or affidavit documents marked by hand or via software and then printed and actually physically mailed back to an elections office. Right. Next, we have three methods of digital return in which the ballot document and the affidavit document are digital files or they get turned into them and then get transferred over the internet to some computer operated by, we hope, an election official. And that official can use that computer to receive those files, to print them, to store them together without peeking, and stored in a way where we hope the ballot is protected from view while being stored with the affidavit, which has the voter's identity on it. And the three variations there are email, fax, and file upload. Thanks, John, for that reminder. The final two methods involve a voter using software to mark a ballot and actually send that marked ballot back over the internet using some standard cryptography and data security to protect those digital documents. So in one of these methods, those files are stored with a digital ledger for added security on the receiving end. And in the other variation, there's no ledger, just ordinary file storage. Okay. So... Let's get started on the seven ways in which that these ballot return methods can be compared to one another. Now, I'll take the first two. Tamper evident means that an election official or other observer could tell if a ballot has been tampered with en route from the voter. Destruction evident means that destruction of the ballot would be detectable. That's right. And physical return methods like mailing a ballot back or using a Dropbox, don't necessarily show that a ballot has been tampered with. This could potentially happen without a voter or election official detecting it. So we say that this is not a tamper-evident method. Likewise, if a ballot is destroyed, that could potentially go unnoticed, although many jurisdictions do offer some ballot tracking, so voters can have some way to know whether their ballot was actually received. But because this isn't guaranteed, we will say that this method is not destruction evident either. That's right. A clumsy tampering could be detected, but it's quite feasible for a careful attacker to open an envelope, tamper the ballot, reinsert, reseal. Yeah, and the same is true of email, fax, file upload. Marked ballots are subject to tampering or destruction on the voter's computer or even after arriving at the election official's computer and in some cases in transit as well. And in some cases like email, especially, 
those ballots are subject to undetectable tampering. However, the two crypto-heavy methods that we mentioned at the end are more likely to show tampering, so those are considered to be tamper-evident. And if there's a ledger used, there is some possible detection of destruction as well in some but not all of the cases. Audrey, I will defer to you on the next point of comparison, which is whether the return method provides any digital data security or integrity protections. So what does that mean in practice? That just means, John, that it's using standard cryptography methods to encrypt the data before sending it back over the internet, and that it performs some standard checks that the data that arrives isn't tampered with en route. So that's in addition to using standard encryption of the communications channel. Okay. Well, that's obviously not applicable to physical return of absentee ballots. And it is not part of email, fax, or upload either but it is part of the two crypto-heavy return methods. Am I right? Yes. It's durable encryption of the actual ballot itself, of the data at rest, separate from any encrypted transmission over the internet. So data security at rest and the closely related tamper-evident property are a basic part of those two crypto-heavy return methods that we mentioned. Okay. So those two closely related properties make these two crypto-heavy return methods distinctly better than email fax, and upload. And some might say these methods are more advantageous than physical return of paper absentee ballots. So no matter how much we increase the use of ballot tracking technology, availability of drop boxes, and so on, there will be voters who just have to trust the Postal Service, especially overseas voters. Yes, some voters are going to have to send their ballots back through the postal system. But John, I just want to pause for a moment and say that it really is apples and oranges to compare the security of a paper ballot sent via mail and the security of a digital ballot sent back over the internet. Sure, each method has some risk because the ballot is spending some time away from the voter before it reaches the election official. But I just want to point out that accessing a physical ballot to tamper with it is not the same as accessing a digital ballot. And we'll really highlight that in these next few security methods. Yeah, absolutely. Not only is that a key point we'll get to in a minute, but also we need to consider the difference between threats and risks. We've been talking about risks here, but we will get to that. But with three down and four to go, I want to say that the next four points of comparison are notable because, at least in my view, for all four, physical ballot return methods get a yes on all four. And every digital return method gets a no. So I think that's a really clear distinction. Yeah, I agree with you, John. There are some nuances in the GBA report. There's a summary table where some of these yeses and nos have a footnote, and in some cases, just an asterisk instead of a yes, no, because there was an agreement on a yes or no in the report. But I do agree with you that on these physical returns get yeses and every digital method gets a no. And we'll get into those asterisks and other weeds next time. But having made this key distinction about these last four points before even telling you what they are, we can get into those physical return, those, sorry, those four characteristics of return methods that we can compare. But let's just define those four things at a high level so our audience can see how at a first approximation, physical return gets a yes and all digital return gets a no, especially a resounding no for email return. Yeah, that's a good idea, John. Let's tell them what we're talking about first. So the first of these final four is a little bit of a mouthful. 
preserves voter privacy via permanent separation of the ballot and affidavit. I know this is your favorite, so why don't you start with that one? It is a mouthful, but it is my favorite because it's one of the most fundamental things about paper absentee voting. And explaining it requires a bit of a story, a story about how absentee ballots are processed, because not every voter really understands this in detail. It's a process that those of us in the trade would call ballot verification, at least as one of many terms. So in this story, imagine it's election night and local election officials are counting paper absentee ballots. And for each one, there's an affidavit that comes with it, not looking at what's on the ballot. Hopefully it's in a privacy sleeve. They examine the affidavit. And while that ballot is still in an envelope or privacy sleeve, they can use that affidavit to verify the voter's signature and check a number of other things that are legally required for the ballot to be eligible for counting. For example, they can't vote twice. Okay, after all these requirements are met for one affidavit, that affidavit goes one way into storage and the still enveloped ballot goes another way. Right. And on that other path, the ballot is removed from the envelope only after being separated from the affidavit. So this ensures that critical property that no one can look at a ballot before, during, or after counting and determine which person voted that ballot. Or can it? There are nuances, but we'll get into them next time. But that's the basic idea, and it's a critical point of comparison. So now I'm going to bat it right back to you, Audrey, because I know the next one is your favorite. Whether a return method supports a post-election audit of the voters' original ballots. Yes, this is my favorite. And in most elections, as we know, machines are counting the ballots. But with paper ballots, we can always go back and check that the machine count would match the paper count. We usually do this by looking at a random sample of the paper ballots just as a quality control check. But the key here is that we have to be able to trust the paper. And we do if it's the same paper that the voter marked and if it's been securely stored since they marked it. With digital return methods, as we've mentioned, this just isn't possible. The ballot that the voter interacts with on their screen or on their device is not guaranteed to be the same as the ballot the election official prints out. Yes, and I, I think that's the key point, isn't it? A paper ballot from a voter is the ballot the voter had. A paper ballot printed from an email, voter never examined that, and you can't really be sure it says what the voter meant. Now, if you add all the fancy math and the two crypto-heavy methods, you still can't be 100% sure. With all that fancy math, the best you can get is this. If the crypto works right, then the printed, counted ballot that the voter never saw is, in fact, what the voter meant. If. And I love that you put that in an if-then logical statement, John, because that's a big if the crypto works right. That's hardly guaranteed. Since there is still wide scope for human error and insider abuse. So this is just not the same as a paper ballot that actually came from the voter. We can't treat them the same way. And that's why this point of comparison is specifically about whether a digital return method supports an audit of the voter's original ballot, not a digital something that might or might not be a faithful copy. Okay. The last two methods are much simpler, but just as important. Now, the second to last is a bit of a mouthful, but I hope self-explanatory. And that's whether tampering with the ballot requires a human to be physically present to the ballot itself. And let me just say a little bit more. 
that could be physically present with the physical paper ballot, or it could be physically present with the digital ballot on some computer somewhere. But the key issue is, does an attacker have to be physically present in order to do an attack? And do you have to have the ballot in hand in order to tamper with them? Are you going to have to do that one by one? Or is there a way to have physical access to a box of ballots, swap a box of carefully prepared fake paper ballots? What kind of access is really needed to tamper with these different kinds of ballot return? And that is a simple yes for paper ballots. If you don't have physical access, you can't mess with ballots. By contrast, all the digital ballot return methods involve computers and networks and more, where a cyber attacker from anywhere in the world can try tampering those ballots. And that's why all four of the digital return methods get a no on this point of comparison. Yeah. And last but not least, the final point of comparison is whether or not a digital return method is subject to such a wholesale attack that can alter every ballot or whether every attack is limited to just a group of ballots. And that's the difference that you mentioned earlier with risks between digital return and digital return being apples and oranges, right? Yeah. Maybe a postal worker can attack all the ballots in a single mailbox. But that's not the same as that one postal worker accessing every single ballot. So by contrast, if every single ballot is going through an email system, then a cyber attack on that email system can implant some malware, could install it on the LEO's computers, and then that could handle the intake of all of those email ballots, every single one of them getting tampered with as a result of a single attack. So we call that a wholesale attack. And in this case, of course, it's a wholesale digital attack without physical presence as well. Whew, that was a lot, but it's an explanation of all of the seven critical ways that we can compare physical ballot return to any of the digital return methods. Right. And that means that our next step is to actually do the compare and contrast as we continue to examine the ways in which a digital ballot return presents new and less understood risks to voters. So please join us next time for... The Tangled Web of iVoting. Thank you for listening to this extended two-part conversation with these two subject matter experts on the Tangled Web of iVoting. Again, I'm Gregory Miller, and on behalf of my co-host, thank you for listening. Dead Men Don't Vote is a podcast production of the Trust of O Project. Our executive producer is Royfield Brown. Our program's producer and executive editor is Aaron Fisher. Our news reporter is Frayne Masters. Our content research and fact checker is Jenya Coulter. Media Relations Managed by Sloane McManus, and Art Direction by Bob Smith. The podcast is produced on Riverside FM, London, England, and Berkeley, California. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. The Trust the Vote Project is a nonprofit, nonpartisan initiative building the people's voting system. Visit www.trustthevote.org to learn more and join the movement. The Trust the Vote Project, where code causes change.